Well, good morning, everyone. We welcome those of you here and those who are listening to our podcast online to Disciples Christian Fellowship. Let's welcome our podcast listeners by saying, welcome online family. Thank you. We do welcome all our online family. My name is Weston Eden. Brother Bear Deerdorf and I are your volunteer teaching ministers, sharing the word of God to all who will listen. Our sermons can be heard and shared with others from our website at dcf-church.org or on many podcast outlets under our name, Disciples Christian Fellowship. If you are listening to our sermon podcast and or you need prayer, we would love to know. You can contact us by email. Our email addresses are weston at dcf-church.org or bear at dcf-church.org. Now, for all those who are here live and in person, please turn to one another and say, I worship God and God alone. Amen. Now, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and Brother Bear will put one in your hands, and we'd like you to know that's a gift from our fellowship here um, for yourself, or maybe you have a friend that you're talking to about Christ. We'd like them to go out and get in the hands of people. So if you need one, uh, have him give you one now. We're going to be going into Acts 19 again today. Bear did the first half last week. And I'm preaching on the second half today. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts 19, we'll get to that in a minute. Before we go there, Brother Duffy is going to share his t- weekly tidbit. Good morning. Good morning. We started a little bit uh, into the Lord's Prayer last time by talking about hallowed, with a hallow his name. Um, we talked about hallowing being. Uh, recognizing God's holiness. Uh, We're acknowledging when we do that God's great holiness and relinquishing control of our lives to his perfect will. But it also goes on and says that hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. And the name is really interesting. I love names. Names have meaning or used to have meaning, or supposed to have meaning, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold you guiltless when you take his name in vain. What does it mean to take his name in vain? Well, not misusing his name, but also it just means setting apart who he is. The name is who he is. He is the Savior. He is the Creator. He is all those things. Acknowledging that and, and being sort of sure to set that aside. Set God aside in your life and you will prosper. Here's the tidbit. First Peter 1 Peter 1.15 Because God is holy, He requires that we be holy. Amen. Thank you, Brother Duffy. Hold that tidbit in your mind, in your heart during this message, because that's a large part of what this message is on today in regards to God being holy, and we should be worshiping only God. And you're going to find out today, as Brother Bear went into last week, and really what you've been seeing over the last several weeks in Acts, this whole idea of idol worship in Corinth and Athens and now in Ephesus. It's going on all over, and it's going on today. So we'll get into more of that. Apollos, recapping Bear's message last week, and this is going to help you transition in today. Apollos was one of the 70 recognized disciples in the first century church. The disciples were of Apollos and John the Baptist. In other words, there were some disciples who were following Apollos because Apollos had followed John the Baptist and his preaching. Paul asked these disciples if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They reported, they repented, but not yet placed their faith in Christ. Paul asked them, into whom were you baptized then? And they said, into John's baptism. 
John the Baptist's calling was one of preparation for the Jews to receive Christ, making them ready to receive Christ, bringing them to a place of repentance so they could receive Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They had not known that Jesus the Messiah had come yet and what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. Paul pointed out their need for faith in Jesus, and they were baptized, having put their faith in Jesus. All 12 men repented and believed in Jesus for salvation. Now the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in them. The seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish high priest, saw an opportunity to make money and or receive fame by using the name of Paul's God, Jesus. The demons knew Jesus and had heard of Paul, but the demon overpowered them and stripped them naked and fled. Do you remember that story? I know Jesus and I know of Paul, but who are you? And they overpowered him and beat him up. So my note to this is that anyone who thinks they can fool God about their spiritual condition is foolish. And we see here the demons aren't fooled either. The one being fooled is the one who portrays himself as a Christian but is not. Secondly, using Jesus' name for money and fame is a sin. Christianity is not a marketing tool to advance personal agendas. Well, a great number who were practicing sorcery brought their books together and burned them in public. The counted value, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And Bear had said that in today's modern equivalent, that would be about four to five million dollars worth of books that they burned. It makes me wonder if we did this today, if Christians were to repent and burn all their unbiblical books on various false teachings of Christ, who knows how much money that would be. I know for me, I trashed about five, 300 to $500 worth of books, maybe more, when I repented of unbiblical teaching, books I had accumulated and read. And then I got to thinking this morning how many seminars and conferences I'd gone to and spent money on that were unbiblical, lots. I believe that the church should have a day once a year where we burn unbiblical material that we've accumulated, ridding ourselves of these ungodly books and not giving them away to bookstores. And then the bear went on the final part of that. And the word of the Lord concerning eternal salvation through faith in Christ grew greatly and continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I would add to that, if you notice, as we're going through the books of Acts, every time there's a, a preaching and a time of repentance, the growth is going. More and more people are coming to Christ. People repent, they have their heart changed, their heart's been regenerated, they love God and they love Christ and what he's done for them, and the word just starts spreading. So we don't need marketing strategies to grow the church. We need repentance and faith. So I'm going to start now in Acts chapter 19. We're going to read verses 21 through 41. And you can read along with me. I'm using the NASB, but whatever version you have, you'll, you'll get it. Now, after these things were finished, that is what Bear preached on last week, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. 
you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know the reason why they had even gathered together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly." For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. End of reading. So let's go through this a few verses at a time and try to get a feel of what's going on here and how this might be possibly relevant to today. We'll go through verses 21 and 22 just to begin with. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, Luke, being the author of Acts, doesn't write about it here. But one reason why Paul wanted to go through Macedonia and Achaia, then on to Jerusalem, was to deliver an offering to Jerusalem church that he had been collecting. We know this from a letter he wrote to the Roman church. That's in chapter 15 of Romans. It says this, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So that's where he's headed after this. He wants to go to Jerusalem and give them an offering that's been collected from the churches. 
Verse 22, Paul sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead to Macedonia, and now he's going to stay in Ephesus. Now we go through verses 23 through 27. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Who's Star Wars fans? Are there any Star Wars fans? Okay, I, I couldn't help but think of this. In the Star Wars series, there's always a saying, there's been a disturbance in the force. There's a disturbance in the force. Okay, that's not this. Some translations say a great commotion occurred. So I'm wondering, are you noticing how much commotion, aggravation, and hostility there is toward Christ and his disciples wherever they go or wherever they are? And we see this today. You, you could be a part of most any other religion in the world, and this level of intense hatred would not be present. There are many explanations for this, but there are at least three that I think are the most important. Number one, Jesus was God in the flesh. And number two, our God loves us and died for us to prove it. And three, our standing with God is based on faith and not merit. Those are the three most powerful, relevant cases of Christ that are different from all the other religions. No other religions in the world make these claims. Many talk of a God of some sort, but no one has seen their God, much less their God loving them to the point of sacrificing himself for them to death. And most all religions other than Christianity are based on merit. One must earn his way up the ladder to get spiritual approval by their God. In place of the real God, many religious cults create a man-made idol to pray and honor and make sacrifices to, which we're going to see today. We learned about this in Acts 17 when Brother Bear preached about his time in Athens. This was in that chapter, Acts 17, verses 22 through 25. So Paul stood in the midst of Aragopas and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So this is the gospel Paul's preaching in all these cities now, and he's raising the ire of many, many people. Now, some idols that we know of today, we don't normally think of idols in America as, you know, things that we created. That was really big back then. Some idols are material and some are mystical. And sometimes even human idolatry. In our text here, we're going to be talking about idols made of silver. Verse 24 says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger in this trade of ours falling into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship could even be dethroned from her magnificence. So the word shrine here that they're using, it means a small case or a small chest or box in which they would put sacred things in. The shrine in this instance would have been a small, portable temple. And 
probably containing a silver image of the goddess Artemis. The King James Version uses the name Diana, so if you're using that version, you might see Diana in there. It's the Latin name for Artemis. This was a Greek goddess, a multi-breasted figure. Maybe you've seen pictures of this Artemis in books. It's, it was the goddess of fertility, quite disturbing in my opinion. And this temple that was built to Artemis in Ephesus was a stunning building. It was 425 feet long with 125 columns. At that time, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was built after someone found a little black image of multi-breasted Artemis in a spot on the ground. And they assumed that this Artemis was sent from heaven from Jupiter. And so they built a temple on that spot. So this Demetrius character was likely the leader of this group. I think today maybe you, you could think of it like a union trade or something like that. So Demetrius was ahead of this group who were craftsmen and silversmiths. And they were making bank on making these idols. They all had a financial interest in making these silver idols that thousands of people would buy as objects of worship. And they would bring them to these massive worship services held once per year. He was bringing these craftsmen a lot of business and possibly getting a cut you know, from some of their profits. So he's worried that if this Paul dude comes around and starts creating trouble, like he has been through the entire province, they're going to go out of business. They're going to be broke. And for good measure in Demetrius's talking to his group of purveyors, he goes on to say, and this temple, the great goddess, she might be regarded as worthless and all of Asia worships her. You know, we can't let this happen. She might be dethroned, you know, how magnificent she is. I wonder if he even believed that. I, I kind of think none of these craftsmen believed in any of that stuff. They're just making money on it. Do you see the foolishness of this? Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 11, tell us about idol worship. This is God's words in the very beginning in Deuteronomy about how he looks at worshiping idols. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on the earth or beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And of course, the Lord had put that on Duffy's heart this morning. We didn't talk about this. Now today, many people and organizations make a lot of money marketing idolatry. And as I said earlier, you may think in your minds, I think most Christians, when they think of idolatry, they think of what's happening here in Ephesus or what happened in Corinth. They were handmade items that they were worshiping various gods. That's not so much what happens in America today, but there's still a lot of idol worship. Try to think of this. We don't see too many Greek idols made of silver on the shelves at your craft store. I'm sure there are some, but not to a great extent, that would be upset about a massive number of people if they were no longer for sale, because there just aren't that many of them. But let's say the Apostle Paul journeyed into one of the major cities in America today and saw all the idol worship going on and the money being made from marketing a false Jesus or marketing a false gospel or marketing pop culture Christian music that isn't of Christ, 
or selling silver crosses of Jesus still hanging on them, or selling porcelain items of Mary and Peter. You see, there are many ways today that we are worshiping other gods. A popular TV show called The Chosen portrays Jesus as just a good man, trying to get people to love one another by using psychology and moral reasoning. It doesn't use the scriptures as God gave us, the most basic precepts of who God and Jesus are, and what Jesus actually taught regarding sin, repentance, death, heaven and hell, are glossed over. The idea is to get the TV show out to millions and millions of people worldwide to show them this wise and kind pop culture Jesus. And it works. It is very popular. And when the producers are confronted about presenting a false Jesus, and they are being called out by many pastors and Bible teachers, they have every kind of excuse and reason why what they are doing is good. They have also developed a persecution complex. Woe is me. So many Christians don't understand. We're working so hard to introduce Jesus to the world, and we're being hated for it. The truth is, like Paul called out false gods and idols, they are being called out, but they will not repent and stop marketing a false Christ. So, like Demetrius and his purveyors of idols in our text, the purveyors of the chosen are making millions of dollars on their false Jesus, and they're not about to stop. And in our text today, Demetrius and his purveyors of idols responded similarly. Verses 28-31 When they heard this, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some from the Asiarchs who were friends of Paul's, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into that theater. So these craftsmen and Demetrius had riled up a riot. And we saw that recently in another chapter where they're, they're riling up this riot. Loud screaming. I akin it to like what we saw in the BLM riots a few years ago. That's recent. And they mob-rushed into the theater, dragging Paul's companions along with them. Now, this was the theater of Ephesus. That's what it was called, which is next to the temple of Artemis. Um, the Ephesus theater could hold about 25,000 people. It was a wide-open-style theater, like you'd see in the movies of gladiator games. It was used for gladiator games and theaters and dramatic entertainment. Now, this was a big crowd of people who were incensed at Paul, and he was ready to go in and talk to them. Now, keep in mind, I didn't say this earlier, but this festival that they're doing is only once a year. So this is the one time people bring their idols of Artemis and go to the theater and they worship, and it's a big gig, it's a big thing. So it's full of a lot of people. Had Paul gone in, had his friends not stopped him, he probably would have been beaten to a pulp. But Paul had no fear. Paul wanted to go in. The disciples wouldn't let him, and some Asiarchs who were friends of his urged him not to enter the theater. Now, Asiarchs were persons who presided over these public games. They were kind of in charge of how it goes. It was their business to see that the proper respect is observed, and in this case, to the goddess Artemis, and to ensure that proper honor was rendered to the Roman emperor in the public festivals and the games. So they weren't believers. But somehow, Paul had endeared them. Somehow, they respected Paul, and he developed a friendship among these people. So that's something for us to remember, that we're supposed to 
make friends with people and have opportunities to present the gospel. And that's what Paul was doing. Verses 32 through 34. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized Alexander was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all of them as they shouted for about two hours, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians! So can you picture that? Thousands and thousands of people just chanting this for two straight hours. What kind of ruckus that had to be. This is one of those mob scenes where people just join in emotion and shouting, but they really don't even know why they're there. It's mass confusion, and in my experience with mobs here in Denver, and a few years ago in other cities around the country, they are engineered by Satan. They're angry, full of hostility, out of their minds. Worship of anything other than God opens doors to the human mind and soul for the devil's influence. Does that make sense? When you just go out on these frenzies, you have no conscious idea of what you're actually doing, that's demonic. So God is working mightily in Ephesus through the apostle Paul and his mighty team spreading the gospel. And the devil is active as well. Now, it is possible, according to what I was studying about this from many theologians, this scene that's going on in Ephesus was what inspired Paul to write the spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians chapter 6. So I'd like to go through that a little bit at a time. I'm not going to do a whole teaching on it, but I want you to consider what Paul is experiencing here, how the Holy Spirit might have inspired him to write that passage on spiritual warfare, because that's what's going on. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. God never told us to be demon hunters. We're not given instructions to rebuke Satan. This is a common and false teaching today. We are to be strong in God's might. Okay? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, before we get to the rest of this, I want you to pay attention to how many times this is in this passage. Stand firm. Stand firm. We are to stand firmly, not try to attack demons or devils. Picture a Roman soldier fully armored in his sword and his shield ready for battle. Okay, so Paul's writing to a group of people who totally understand the Roman army, what they wear, how they look when they're fighting. So picture this Roman soldier fully armored with his sword ready and his shield positioned for battle. Paul stood courageously against the demonic forces of evil in the strength of might of his God, not himself. So Paul is using this passage to take what Roman warfare looked like in the flesh and he's putting it in terms that they might understand it spiritually. Okay? Verse 12 in Ephesians chapter 6. For our strength is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the Christian struggle is not about the things of this world. Our battles are not political. They are not battles to make America a Christian nation. Our battles are not against mankind. Our battles are spiritual. Now, we have all those things going on, and it's not to say we shouldn't be involved in those things, but that's not where change happens. Not for the believer. That's not what we're called here to do. They are spiritual because if you are born again, you're a new creation. There are many places in the scripture you see that, that we're a new creation. Paul says, take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. You see this all throughout the New Testament. You are now born again, you're a new creation. 
Now I want you to live a spiritual life in Christ. You no longer have a life in this world. Your life is in the kingdom. John 15, 19 says this. This is Jesus speaking. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world, so the world hates you. Yes, you still have the flesh and blood of this worldly life, but your real life in Christ is spiritual. Our battles are spiritual. Paul goes on. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. What is the truth? The word of God? The word of God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Hmm. What does the breastplate cover in, in a Roman army? It covers your heart. What is that righteousness Christ he's talking about here? This righteousness. Is it your own righteousness? No. Put on the breastplate of righteousness in Christ that he has given us through his Holy Spirit. It is the righteousness of Christ who is in you if you are born again believer. So you put on that breastplate and believe who you are in Christ. He's given you that righteousness. Verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is very fascinating. I kind of had a different opinion of this or what this verse was for many years. But I learned something that I think is quite different. Uh, it makes much, much more sense in the context of this passage. The footwear of Roman soldiers were heavy sandals, uh, and they were studded with like these short nails to give a secure foothold to stand and resist. They didn't want to get toppled over, and they didn't want to lose ground. They had to stand their ground in, in battle. In addition to good footwear, the soldier had to stand on solid ground that was not slippery or muddy. The believer in Christ is on solid ground because why? Because Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our rock of which we stand. So this preparation of the gospel of peace that Paul's talking about is the idea of being prepared in heart and mind with the gospel of peace, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. You can't fight spiritual battles and have victory if you are filled with anxiety and fear or unbelief. Colossians 3.15 says this in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Some versions say reign in your heart. Okay? So your part and my part in the spiritual battle is to stay near the gospel which brings peace into our hearts. Does that make sense? The kind of peace that enables us to stand firm and bear the forces of evil against us. In addition to all, Paul says, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So, of course, in battle, the Roman soldier would use his shield, literally, to stop arrows sometimes flaming arrows. Uh, in the spiritual battle, we have a shield too. What is our shield? It's our faith. The shield of faith. Faith in God the Father. Faith in God the Son. Faith in the Holy Spirit. It's not faith that we can do something. It's faith that He can do something. Okay? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Now, the Roman helmet protected from head injuries. The spiritual helmet is about protecting your mind from lies, from deceptions, from false teachings. Anything that would get into your mind and pollute it from the word of God or twist it or deceptions. And also, the enemy will come into your mind and try to make you believe 
things that aren't true about yourself. You're not saved. Things of that nature. The enemy cannot take salvation away from you. He cannot take from you what the Holy Spirit has already deposited. So the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. That's your offensive weapon. It is your main offensive weapon. Read it. Study it. Learn how to wield the weapon of the sword of the Spirit. It is the truth, and the truth will not only set you free, it will help you maintain your freedom in Christ by avoiding deceptions and lies. Does that make sense? So I love this picture that the Holy Spirit showed Paul how to use this analogy between a Roman soldier, which they knew very well what that looked like. We just don't understand that well because we don't, we don't live in that time. But if you see what a Roman soldier looks like in all their armor, and you see them in battle, just that's, this is exactly what they're doing. And this is what we're to do in the spiritual realm. And finally, prayer. Notice Paul didn't use a Roman soldier analogy in this. I guess they weren't prayer warriors. Okay, I thought that was funny. This final piece of spiritual armor is the act of praying consistently and with perseverance, not only for yourself, but for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, Paul said, that utterance may, give, may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So if you put that in context of where he is right now in Ephesus, that's probably what he was praying. He wanted to minister the gospel in these places with all these people, but there are riots going on around him. And then he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's our goal as believers, to stand firm in the faith of Christ, stand on the rock, put our armor on, spread the gospel, teach the gospel, live the gospel, obey the gospel. God does the rest. So finishing in verses 32 through 34 of today's text, in the midst of this mob riot, there were some who believed Alexander, who was a Jew, was responsible for the rioting. Why would they believe that? Well, the Jews despised idol worship, and they were often causing religious riots, as we've been reading about week after week. So they assumed Alexander probably caused this. But what was happening was the Jews were putting Alexander forward to be their spokesman to defend themselves because they didn't want to be associated with Paul being a Jew. They wanted nothing to do with Paul. They wanted to say, we don't know this man. We have nothing to do with him. But now the mob knows Alexander is a Jew, and they ramp up their commotion, screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for about two straight hours. Verses 35 through 41. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is guardian of the temple, the great Artemis, and of the image which fell down from heaven? So this town clerk was a position of authority and was able to quiet the crowd down. He appeals to them that the worship of this great goddess Artemis is so well established that there's no danger of it being destroyed by the Jews or any single man. And he tried to calm their unreasonable fears. Verse 36. So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are together on this, or if they have anything against anybody, the courts are open, and you can come give your case. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it's going to be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with these events today, since there's no real cause for it, and in connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After that, he dismissed the assembly. What can we take from this? So I'm just going to do a brief summary and then give a few little application points. 
One thing we learned from this section of Scripture, including Brother Bear's last week, is that when the Church of Christ is operating like we're called to operate, there's going to be resistance. When we're calling people to repentance, when we're calling people to reject idolatry or false Jesuses or false teaching, the ungodly culture is going to be greatly disturbed, even to the point of hostility. When the Spirit of Christ is powerfully moving with boldness and fearlessness, do not be surprised that the devil, in his great wrath, will ramp up his lies and deceptions and confusion and every kind of commotion and hostility, possibly. For his time is short. So, first of all, don't participate in any kind of idolatry. In today's world, that isn't so much items. It can be. But I want you to think about all the other forms of idolatry, like I've already mentioned, that are around. There's many things that many people put above God or ahead of God in their life, saying they worship God. But they have other things they worship more. Maybe sports. Maybe politics. Maybe some movement. Even if it's a quote-unquote Christian movement. Addictions. All these are forms of things that we put ahead of God. Number two, don't encourage idolatry. Stand against it. We can encourage idolatry by passively allowing it and not saying anything because we don't want to get involved. We don't want to stand against it. And sometimes we finance idolatry by purchasing products and services of those who are marketing false Christs and false teachers. And as I got to thinking about this, there's a massive amount of this. If you just really think about all the ways that Americans, Christians, spend money on things that aren't godly necessarily, seminars, video series, CDs, all kinds of things, then you find out later that that wasn't good stuff. And I spent money on that. How much money is spent on this stuff? It's a lot of money. Number three, grow in discernment by staying in the word of God and listening to sound teaching. Do you mind if I mention what I sent you, Sherry? We were having a conversation over breakfast a few weeks ago about idolatry and false teachings and things like that. And Sherry was really interested and alert. She had really taken that to heart, and she wants to know more. So I sent her an email with a teaching that helped me from a pastor in Kassarok. His name's Dave Love. And he did a whole series on false teaching that comes from Second Peter. And he goes through all the various false teaching churches in America today and false teachers, most of which you would probably know of and some that you wouldn't know of. But this is one way that we can train ourselves and teach ourselves is reading the word and listening to sound biblical teaching. You know, we, we purpose ourselves to only use the scripture here. And there are other really great Bible teachers too. So I would ask, you know, that you, you do that and maybe you consult with Vera and I and, and Duffy about what is good, what is sound teaching. And then number four, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, this can be the schemes of the devil against you and your family, all the ways he wants to twist things or change things or make you think things that aren't true, or it could be against the church. And that's why Paul is saying in those scriptures, pray for all the saints. We ought to be praying for one another and praying for all the saints. So put your armor on. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for these um, scriptures. And what we're learning in this book of Acts of how the first church got started, the church in Ephesus and Corinth, and it's, there's so much going on here, Lord, that when you're doing it as a series like this, 
It just builds on itself. And I think about the Apostle Paul and his, and his uh, disciples who were following and helping him. How much was against them? Riots and beatings. Everywhere he went, it seems, there was some sort of disturbance or riot. And he was so filled with the spirit of strength, courageous. And so I pray for myself, for Brother Bear and Brother Duffy and Brother Lenny and all of us in this fellowship, that we would submit ourselves completely to you, surrender ourselves completely to you, because that's where the power is, is letting go of our own strength and standing in your strength. God, would you help us as a fellowship right here in Littleton, Colorado, that we could be a beacon of light for the gospel and that you would draw people here because they want to hear the word. And as I say that, I'm thankful for several new people that have been coming to our fellowship because they want to hear the word and people are growing. So I'm asking, Lord, that you strengthen that in us here and all around the, the churches in Denver who are biblical that you draw people into them. And then I I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment how to discern idolatry and false teachings and be willing to stand against it because it's not about us. This is about the kingdom of God and people coming to Christ in the truth. Cover us in your your strength, in in your wisdom, and that we would have that peace of Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.